Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Hello, my name is Joe Armstrong, and thank you for listening to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. This week on Independence Day, Ronan Chris Murphy. Sometimes when people set off down a path in life, the universe presents an alternate path. And sometimes that alternate path turns out to be better suited for the person anyway. As a youngster, Ronan Chris Murphy dreamed of being a rock star. But as soon as he started playing in bands, he also found himself tinkering with nascent home recording technology, which at the time consisted largely of tabletop analog cassette multi-track recorders. Bands need demos, after all. His performing career was by no means a failure. Murphy managed to parlay his stature in the vibrant punk scene in his native Washington, D.C. into tours, sharing stages with acts like Dinosaur Jr., The Flaming Lips, Guar, and The Rollins Band. As he rode around in a van rocking America city by city, Murphy's reputation as a producer and audio engineer continued to grow. At some point, Murphy had a watershed realization that he got as big a thrill behind the studio mixing board as he did on stage, and he began to focus his energies on the recording process. It wasn't long before he was working with some of those same well-known bands with which he'd shared stages, helping them find the exact right sound for their albums. Record production is a sort of voodoo art, after all, and Murphy was able to combine his passion for all aspects and all styles of music with his creative approach to recording technology. Like any person who is serious about their avocation, Murphy followed the work and found himself living in different cities and on different continents before he eventually settled in Los Angeles and opened his flagship studio, Venado West. Along the way, he founded Recording Boot Camp, a week-long crash course in making good music sound great using the essential tools of the trade, including a discerning ear. Two and a half decades later, Murphy's approach remains the same, to help artists make albums that defy trends and define their sound. Welcome to Independence Day, Ronan Chris Murphy. How are you, friend? I'm great, man. It's really good to be with you. Glad it finally worked out. It's good to see you. Like people out there in the listening audience, there's a very there's a few very special things about this particular episode. The most important thing of all, perhaps, uh, Ronan Chris Murphy. He is a studio owner. He is a producer. He is a musician. He is an engineer. Uh, I know him from a project that I worked on of my own a few years ago, which we worked together on. That he did some mixing on my last record. Uh, he does great work. He's got his own studio. He used to be on the west side of L.A. Now he's kind of moved out of the city just a little bit north of Los Angeles in the mountains near Mount Pinos, which is up off the five, kind of in the boonies out there, which is great to get away from things. Um, but the other thing is, this is a remote episode. This is a field trip. I got a chance to get out of the studio, out of the Independence Day World Headquarters in the uh, Glendale Eagle Rock area and get up to the mountains where I don't have cell phone service. Ronan, thank you for that gift alone. My pleasure. I help out where I can. Uh, give me just, let's let's start off with just a little bit of biographical information because as someone, you know, a lot of times people know about performers. They've mm. read things in magazines or online. You know, as a, as a producer engineer type, which is what you're mostly known for, yep. you're kind of behind the scenes. So people not, may not know. Like what it is that you do? Like, tell me, like, where you grew up first and foremost, like, and how that affected you musically. Well, um, that's actually had a big impact because I was born in Washington D.C. Punk scene, exactly. Yeah. So when I was growing growing up in high school, I was I grew up uh, just across the river in Arlington, Virginia, uh, and yeah, for the time I was lucky lucky to be a teenager in sort of the early mid '80s in Washington, D.C., and if you were into kind of hardcore punk and things like that, the American hardcore scene, 
basically LA or DC is where you wanted to be. Right. And maybe New York a little bit. Yeah, New York, but there and a lot of scenes, you know, even yeah. Wisconsin had their own cool That's thing true. going on. But those were kind of the two hubs where so much amazing iconic stuff was coming out of that had great scenes and so that was a huge impact and you know not even just musically but there was kind of a culture it's an ethos too yes like the whole like diy ethic was such an intense part of the washington dc punk scene uh that it really informed kind of almost everything else i've ever done up to this point and and that was just normal it was kind of like it was normal that if you couldn't get gigs you just decide to start booking gigs. Right. And you know, if you know, if you couldn't get a label to sign you, you create your own yappy little punk rock label. Right. And things like that. So that that was kind of my big upbringing and you know, from that time the funny little footnote in history was, you know, my first band, real band was this yappy little punk rock band called Freak Baby. And after I quit the band, I took uh, the guitar player with me to start something else because in 1984, punk was dead. Uh, I calculated that one a little bit wrong. But uh, Dave Grohl ended up being the replacement guitar player on that. So, you know, my first band and Dave's first band were the same band, even though we were, it was two weeks apart. We were never actually in the same band together. Are you saying that you're the Pete Best of Nirvana? <laughs> uh, or something akin? <laughs> we, we, we could probably work that logistic around somewhere. A little bit, a um, little bit. Go on, I'm sorry. But, no, but that's fine. But, you know, and, you know, after that, I was really active in the scene that became known as like grunge and alternative right. after that. So uh, in Richmond, Virginia, which was another kind of amazing musical creative scene. So, you know, my band, while not famous, we got to do a bit of touring, you know, and we got to play with bands like Dinosaur Jr., The Flaming Lips, Henry Rollins, Death Angel, Guar, all the Doughboys. The coolest bands of the era. Yeah, I was really l- kind of lucky to be, you know, kind of proactive and in a cool place, you know, by luck, yeah. being in a cool place where a lot of great, exciting stuff was happening. Location, location, location. Exactly. And it's, but the funny thing is, it's kind of part of the punk ethos. This came up on a, a show recently where, like, no matter where you are, when you're a kid, you want to be somewhere else. You know, you like, if you're, you know, your, your town is uncool. Yeah. You know, so I was thinking about the kids who, like, went to Santa Monica High School, you know, and because it's, it's the weather's perfect. It's a beautiful place. There's culture stuff going on around, or New York, or yeah. like these places which are hotbeds for the for creativity. And like, there's still something in those kids. Like, yeah, this sucks, you know. <laughs> so, but you had the good fortune of la- you know just landing in a place where something was happening. So yeah. you had a fertile ground, you know. So when you started, so like, who were the bands that you were listening to? Like, that's right before you started to play. Because I think that's a key point mm-hmm. in people's musical development. Like, what bands did you idolize? Like, right before you started playing and like forming a band, were they the same bands or was it different? Well, it was a lot of different stuff. And for me, I've always just been a complete musical mutt. You know, it's. You know, I I would say I kind of started playing music. Like Neil Young is the guy that inspired yeah. me to like want to do music. Uh, and you know, but the bad brains were what wanted me, made me want to start a band. Right. And so, you know, huge influences at the time. Again, like Neil Young, Husker Du was a massive, massive influence uh, on me in the early days. I was a huge fan of PIL, uh, which if you listen, Johnny Lydon's yes. post. Pistols band. Yes, and if you if you listen to any of my like really early stuff, it's 
pathetic how bad uh-huh. I was trying to rip them off. But that's where we all start, though. <laughs> exactly, this, Something yeah. that also came up on a recent show is that when you're a young musician, like almost nobody starts off doing exactly their own thing. Like yeah. There's a handful of bands, like you 2 Talking Heads, yeah. like learned how to do what they do while they were doing yes. it. Yes, uh-huh. Everyone else were just emulating their idols, you know? Yeah. Even the Beatles, mm-hmm. trying to be Richard Bear, uh, or uh, Little Richard and Chuck Berry. And exactly. <laughs> uh, so now at this point... Um, so Neil Young, you were into like the punk scene. You were into the DIY thing. Was that something that kind of came from your family? Because not everybody's like that. Not everybody thinks to take that step and just kind of figure it out on their own. That was a DC thing. Again, that was it. Was just such a part of you know Washington DC punk scene of doing it yourself. It was again. It wasn't anything that made me exceptional. It made me average, right. <laughs> dude. I mean, maybe I worked a little bit harder than some others on that, but you know, the whole idea of it, and it was punk in general, again, like, uh, you know, not really knowing how to play didn't really stop you from being in a band. Right. Not being good enough to get gigs didn't stop you from finding a way to create those opportunities to get gigs. Right. You know, it's one of those things like we were so like uncool and not cool enough, but like, huh, if I book a show and get Iron Cross to headline it, my band gets to play right. with Iron Cross. Right. And so all of a sudden it's like, yeah, this is <laughs> yeah. really cool and how it worked. And, you know, the same sort of thing. And, you know, as my career progressed and became more active and setting up tours and things like that, but even in terms of what I would later do in terms of production and engineering, you know, just kind of finding ways to create opportunities that didn't come my way. Right. And that's like the ultimate DIY aesthetic. And it's something that I think looms large in just the American psyche or like yeah. the American experience, which is, you know, we showed up and aside, well, let's, let's just avoid the fact that we stole it from the people that were here <laughs> before <laughs> us and killed them. Yes. Uh, let's, we'll set that aside for now. It's a death, someone else's podcast. <laughs> Um, you know, we had to find a way to make our way. You know, we were from all these different places and all these different cultures and all these different ideas about how you live. And then somehow up until very recently, we figured out how to live more or less peaceably Mm -hmm. and, you know, have enough of a common experience to like go in a particular direction as a people. Um, you know, it's, we seem to have lost that, but (laughs) again, that's someone else's podcast. Um, and the other thing that made me, made me think of well, while you're speaking there is that I think that the, you know, there's this whole thing about being like cool and uncool at the same time when you're into the punk thing. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that like the, the best way to be cool is just to be you. Yeah. Whatever it is that that is. Like that's the way people seem to perceive you as being cool. A friend of mine was at a coffee shop this morning. She put on Facebook, yeah, Nick Cave was at the coffee shop with mm-hmm. her. Ultimately, you know, one of the coolest guys going. Yeah. And she couldn't bring herself to go talk to him. Like didn't want to, and I appreciate that. Didn't want to like disturb his coffee, um, but that the cool thing is like Nick Cave is just being Nick Cave. Yep. Tom Waits <laughs> is being Tom Waits, and you know David Gilmore is being David Gilmore. Everybody's being it is whoever it is that they are. Yep. So kudos to you for 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 doing that. Anyway, this week's guest on Independence Day, Ronan Chris Murphy. He is the owner of a recording studio. Do you keep the name? Same studio? Yeah, it's Veneto West. It's yeah. the name of my publishing company, my production okay. company. Always kind of. Tags along with the studio, wherever that goes. Yeah, Veneto West. That's V-E-N-E-T-O West. Two words, put them together, and it's venetowest.com is the website. He's worked with a lot, pretty some pretty well-known people. You've worked with, uh, let's see, King Crimson? Yeah, a bunch of albums with and him. I, I can mention that you've worked with Guar, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. The I record's just, just not out yet. Correct, yeah. Okay, and list off some of the other folks. There's a whole bunch of people on the website. But well, a bunch of stuff. Um, I... Yeah, so I just finished the the Guar record. Uh, actually, fun thing, I just mastered the album score for Jordan Peele's movie Get Out, 
which was awesome. But I've worked with like uh, Terry Bozio, Steve Morse, uh, Nels Klein uh, from Wilco. And Steve Morris was in Kansas for a while. He was in Dixie Drags. Just yep. trying to give people context here. Yeah, and he's he's been the guitar player of Deep Purple for twenty yeah. years okay. now. And uh, I think he was the guy that Guitar Player Magazine started in their readers poll best overall guitar player. They ended up changing it to best overall guitar player. That's not Steve Morse, right? <laughs> he's just one yeah. of the most and the bluegrass Grammy goes to someone other than Allison Krauss. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> and. Um, but yeah, I worked with the California Guitar, Guitar Trio, uh, Tony Levin. Yeah, um, Peter Gabriel, as well as a billion sessions. Yes, not me, but Tony Levin. Yes. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I'd worked with Peter Gabriel, but not yet. <laughs> well, you're one degree of separation. Exactly. Maybe, maybe we'll get there someday, Ronan. Exactly. All right, so he's my guest on Independence Day this week. Let's fast forward. We're kind of getting his biographical information. Uh, and pay attention, kids. If you want to know how to like make a living in music as a recording engineer, uh, as a producer, uh, someone who's like an all-around musical artistic guy, he's a guy you should pay attention for the next like you know hour or so. We're going to be chatting with him. So pay attention if you want to know how to, for example, like follow in his footsteps exactly because that's what everyone <laughs> wants to do. But what if you want to uh, learn how to be a very creative musical producer engineer? Because the line is very blurry ever since the Beatles broke down that door in the studio at Abbey Road and went into the control room. Being a producer and being an engineer has been part and parcel to making music. It's part of the process now. You know, uh, there are some artists who I suppose sit out there and are told what to do and. And that's what that's what it is. But it's, it's it's much more involved process than that. And since everybody, almost everybody, is doing this at home in some capacity, all of the things we're going to talk about today are applicable to you and your career. How to do this artistically, how to do this musically, and how to do this practically. He's making a living at this. You know, the money that he uses to buy beer and hot dogs, whatever <laughs> he eats, is earned by doing these kinds of things. So, and the first song we've got queued up here. Tell me a little bit about this, uh, Rona. What is this first song here? Well, this is Soundspell. Yes. So I wanted to play this. Um, the tunes I pulled up for us to listen to are just things that I've done throughout the years that I that I find found to be really successful records, and that has nothing to do um, with financially. A couple Artistically of, successful. Yeah, some of the, some of them are you know financially successful, but mostly things where you know we set out with a creative idea or goal and kind of achieved achieved it, or at least achieved something that was exciting and significant. So this is a band uh, called Soundspell from Iceland. And one of the funny things about this band is the one old guy in the band was 17 years old. What's the youngest kid, like three? <laughs> exactly, 15 and 16. Okay. So one guy was 17, the others were all 15 and 16. And musically, they were just mature way beyond their years. And so this is a co-production I did with a friend of mine in Iceland, uh, Albert Hasfeldson. <laughs> and uh, uh, songs, the song is called Her Favorite Color is Blue. And uh, this is a band that I think should have been massive, but, you know, some business things didn't go right in terms of people who were supposed to do stuff. And, you know, they were kids. Kids sort of <laughs> do what they did. To say they were fickle would be an understatement. Well, again, they were just kids. They got, you know, changed interests, went off, did different things, musically different directions. But yeah. uh, this ended up being really kind of ultimately a really beautiful and artistically successful record that, you know, I'm extremely proud yeah. that I got to be a part of. 
Excellent. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about how you get something from a raw like recording idea or like a, a song idea mm-hmm. to a finished product. We'll come back and talk a little bit about that. So this week's guest on Independence Day, Ronan Chris Murphy. He is the owner of Veneto West Studios, which is currently located up in the mountains north of Los Angeles. A beautiful place to come hang out, by the way. Uh, the song is Her Favorite Color is Blue, and the band is Soundspell on Independence Day. Sweet. 
My name is Joe Armstrong. You are listening to Independence Day. Thank you ever so much for doing so. We come to you Wednesday nights via the internet, uh, 7 p.m. Pacific time, this time of the year, it's Pacific Daylight Time. And I think I say this every single time after the first song, I love summertime. <laughs> it's my favorite season. I like the long days. I like the, the, the languorous evenings that take forever. That did I get in dark at 4.30 business is nope. not for me, man. <laughs> I love California, too. Okay, this week's guest, Ronan Chris Murphy. We said that before. That's a song that he produced, or at least co-produced, with a band from Iceland called Soundspell. song was all her, fa- excuse me, her favorite color is blue. Anytime I see the favorite, I was thinking of the uh, Camper Van Beethoven song, All Her Favorite Fruit, which is a favorite record of mine. Awesome. In any case, that's from about 2007 yeah. or so. Um since those were kids, this is a good opportunity to talk about this particular, like, producing is kind of a voodoo art. Yeah. In a way. You know, and maybe, you, you did you retract them too? Or did, was that something that was sent to you to Oh, mix? no, I, I, uh, I re- recorded it. And okay. Albert, Albert, Albert and I did everything together. We perfect. engineered, produced. Perfect opportunity for this kind of thing. Because, as I said, producing for some people, like a movie producer is essentially a financier. Yeah. Someone who shows up with money. And then they, because they're buying in, they get some input on how the direction of the film t- is. But then the director is ultimately the person who does the nitty-gritty day-to-day work of making that into a movie. In music, that's generally the producer. The producer may be a financier, may not. Yeah. More often than I was getting paid. And just, just a, a geeky side note, an American or North American producer. Correct. Because when you're in Europe, uh, usually when you say the producer, that's usually the guy who puts up the money. Right. So the arti- there's the producer and the artistic producer. Right. So yeah, but we, I mean, Ronan, let's be serious. America is all that matters. Come on. <laughs> uh, certainly not in my I kid, career. I kid. It's a joke. <laughs> it's a joke, son. Come on. Uh, uh, I would have a lot less money if yeah. America's. No, no. That's I'm that making sure that's very clear. That's, that's a joke. <laughs> that's a joke. I don't have the America America centric view of the world, even though I do live here. I got taunted by someone <laughs> on Facebook about that not too long ago, and I told him, "You are barking up the wrong tree. I am not your guy for that that fight." Uh, so in America, North America, the producer is someone, you, you know, uh, the band a lot of times or the label will hire that person yeah. and then put them together to try to, you know, create a working relationship. So walk me through that process, both in general and like how you approach it. So a band comes to you, it doesn't have to be that band specifically, yeah. but they've got some songs, you know, they've kind of arranged them, they've been playing around. Um, but now like, w- take me off from here. Well, I mean, to me, the the role of a producer is to kind of come into a record, look at, you know, what's there, figure out what's needed to get this record done and be awesome and bring that to the table. You know, so it's really, really hugely, widely different depending on what kind of record it is. Uh, you know, a buddy of mine made a gr- joke once, somebody was talking about how great a pr- job a producer had done on an ACDC album. And they're like, well, you plug in cables and make sure everyone's got a beer. Okay, yeah. get out of the way. And literally some... Make rec- sure the tempo is between <laughs> like 88 and 92 or whatever that tempo, there's like their sweet spot tempo. I'm sure they came in with that dialed yeah. in. But really, you know, joking about that, but not really. There's some records where I'm brought in to produce where I think the band has just got their vibe down. You know, I might help them pick through out of their 16 songs, which are the best for it. But mostly it's kind of kicking back or it's an engineering job. There's other records where I'm literally going in and, you know, helping them rewrite the songs, playing some of the instruments, uh, working on finding other people to play the instruments. So, 
any any time I'm working with a band, it's 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 never the same thing. And I know some producers have their way that they do things, and that just seems just really weird and bizarre to me. It's sort of like, what's the right spice you use in food? It's like, um, (laughs) you know, uh, and so that's really a big thing. So, you know, my struggle when I'm trying to do a good job is to really try and find out what the record really, really needs and bring that to it. And also hopefully not bring to it what it doesn't need. Right. Because it, it can be just as easy sometimes to bring in things that, you know, maybe it's your own ego really wants to put it in there, but doesn't necessarily help the band or the music kind of move forward. So like, you know, like the Guar record I just finished, which will come out later this fall, <clears throat> that was a really involved record. You know, we spent a lot of time working together before, you know, recording the first note. Uh, both, you know, we worked on co-writing some of the material, sifting through. But the big thing about Guar is, you know, they were at this interesting stage where, you know, they'd lost an iconic singer. Right. Uh, who, you know, who was a real force of nature, amazing guy, amazing artist. And... The thing now is they kind of didn't have this singular focal point of the band. Right. And you had this collection of incredibly talented musicians, all with all sorts of creative ideas. So a lot of my job producing that record was trying to help like all their various sort of creative ideas about the next step and trying to help them distill that into what is the right next step. Right. And and again, other records I produce where it's, you know, making sure everybody's got a beer. <laughs> right. You know, if they need it, uh, everybody's good, making sure we stay on schedule and things like that. Yeah, making sure they're sober enough. Give them a beer and make sure they're sober yeah. enough to yeah, play. Yeah, because I worked on a record uh, a while back, and I remember one of the guys from the band coming, he said, I'm not complaining or anything, but I I never imagined, like, this is how you would track us. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't think that's how you do things. And, yeah, you know, it's like, well... Uh, this is the first record I've done with your band. Right. And, you know, it's looking at things like, you know, sometimes things like the decision to, oh yeah, we're going to record the whole band together, get that vibe. And other times really the best thing for the band and the music is to do it, you know, layer by layer. And I, and one of those isn't better than the other, right? depending on the music. And there's a lot of producers like, oh, I always do it this way. And that just seems kind of silly and yeah. boring to me and doesn't always really honor the music, which is yeah. kind of the, the end goal. You kind of touched upon something through there, which is, you know, because everyone's got their idea of what a producer is or what they should or should not be doing. Anyone yeah. who's been to therapy knows that should is a dangerous word. <laughs> but they, the role of the producer, you almost have to be everything to all people. Yeah or nothing to know people or, mm-hmm. you know, because for that very reason, yeah. every situation is different. And even working with the same band, yeah. album to album project might be a different approach yeah. because every conceivable, this is the thing that I love about being a producer, at least when I think about it from the top down, every conceivable factor and variable factors into what this end product is going to yep. sound like. It, you know, where is this band in their career? Yep. Are they starting out? Are they new? Do they want to sound current? Do they want to sound vibey and old school? Do they are they trying to push new directions like Radiohead constantly tries yep. to do, yep. um, or Bowie or someone like that? Mm-hmm. Um, and discerning that, I mean, sometimes it's as easy as a conversation. You sit down with the band, you do some pre-production. Okay, what what do you want out of this? What yep. is your is there a label? What do they want out of this? What's your budget? Yep. All these things are variables that mm-hmm. play into what this is going to sound like. Uh, you know, budget's a big one. You know, can we do the drums 
at the Capitol building in yeah. their studio? Mm-hmm. Can we do the, do the drums in a garage? Would they sound better based on this project in your garage? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Based on the aesthetic we're going for. Which for is sometimes the case. Yeah. It's, a, it's the I, it's one of my favorite things in the world because it's the ultimate tabula rasa. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's different from a movie production because with a movie, you're projecting an image on the screen, which is infinitely more complicated. Yep. But the beautiful thing about music is you have to create that thing that then a person's, the listener's brain is going mm-hmm. to populate yep. with ideas and images and imprint yep. their own emotions yep. upon that. So uh, I, you know, I can list off producers, a dozen of them, and why I like what they do and why it's different on a particular record. Yeah. You know, so in, in in light of that, like, who were the like? So when you at some point decided you were going to start producing records, was that just kind of a DIY thing? Because you were the guy that knew how to work a Tascam, or like, what was that? <laughs> well, like, how did that come to pass? Well, the short of it, and I'll, let me throw in one more thing on that is just something I was thinking on project I did last year. You know, about like, oh, what does a producer do? People say, oh, I love that producer. Why? Oh, his snare sounds. And a lot of times you're thinking, well, I know who mixes his record, and he always uses snare samples in there, but. You know, people start thinking about, oh yeah, producing a record is, you know, what kind of snare sound you get, which of course that's part of it, but that's kind of the easy part. You know, tough part of producing a record is like, what do you do when there's a real label deadline? Right. You know, and there's a death in the family. I mean, that's when you, when you get down to producing a record, it's like, what do you do when there's a death in the family in the band? And the record has to be delivered on this thing. And you can't say, ah, let's, you know, take a month, guys. Let's, you know, work through this. Springsteen can take a month off. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes, but not always. As a quick aside, one of the Clapton records that came out in the late 80s, back when he had his kind of bob hair phase, (laughs) uh, he got very sick. Yeah. He got the flu during the production of this record. And I, you know, at the time, he's Eric Clapton, one of the biggest artists in the world. And he had the studio book, but he so he couldn't get into that studio again mm-hmm. for another four months, six months. Yeah. Who knows? Plus, he had, you know, back then it was Greg, uh, Steve Ferroni, Greg Philengadies, Nathan uh, Philengadies, Nathan East, those like heavy hitters, yeah. you know, who were also booked to go off and do other things. So yep. it's like, okay, Eric Clapton's sick. He's the boss. It's an Eric Clapton record. So what are we going to do? Yeah, we're going to make an Eric Clapton record. Go on. That's so, my whole point. Anyway, so yes. So that's that's the nitty-gritty, really, of producing. But how I got into it, uh, I was in this band, in, living in Richmond, Virginia, that I loved. And our bass player split, just kind of wasn't digging what we were doing anymore. Fair enough. But I still had all the same kind of creative energy. And, you know, we weren't really playing gigs and things like that anymore. And a friend of mine lent me a, a Porta Studio kind of thing. And I started goofing around, and it just clicked. Now, a Porta Studio... It's like this is where the little sidebar takes place. If we were reading a book, for people who aren't recording people, uh, back before there were computers, if you try to remember back in time, before everything was on your phone, there was a little plastic box which would record, they allowed you to multi-track, which means add additional tracks to a cassette, an actual cassette. Remember those? Uh, Again, before hard drives and such. Uh, so go on. I just want to make sure people know what the hell we're talking. Because if you're not a recording yeah. engineer, you have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah, sorry about. about that. No, it's cool. Um, but yeah, so I had this, again, small cassette portable studio, and I started getting into it. And I, wow, just the technical side of it, the creative side of it, started getting into MIDI programming, and it just lit a fire in me that I became obsessed. I mean, Did I you was, go to college? Uh, I have a degree in psychology, okay. which is probably the most important degree you could get for producing records. <laughs> so... Uh, so that worked out pretty well. Uh, and actually after college, I went to briefly to the Berkeley college of music. I didn't get a, any kind of degree from them. I spent a little time at Berkeley, 150 Mass Ave. Yep. Used to get sandwiches at Supreme's 
pizza right across oh, yeah. the street. Oh, yeah, nice greasy pizza. Get a slice and about eight napkins to soak it up. If you're from Boston, you'll know exactly what we're talking about on that. Um, but, yeah, and the thing about it was I fell in love with it. And, you know, if there was any book on recording, I read it back to front. Uh, any magazines on recording, MIDI, anything like that, I was just obsessed. And the thing about it is I realized it, it was just as exciting to me as being a dude in a band. I loved that. And yeah, I still get a thrill uh, when I play gigs and things like that, but I loved it, but this provided me the same excitement and passion and, uh, and in a way kind of maybe even made more, more sense, you know, I can get old and fat. Nobody really cares, (laughs) you know, more. And in a way you get to be a part of more things, uh, so I just kind of never looked back. I mean, when I first started doing it, of course, me being a musician wasn't going to fall off. You know, I'd still be a performing musician and uh, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it didn't really work out that way. I was a much better guitar player 20 years ago than I am now. But uh, yeah, I just started doing it and it became obsessed with it and pretty much the focus of my life from that point on, which was, you know, probably right around 1990. Okay. Uh, was I must make records, must make records. And pretty much almost every decision in my life from those was how do I get to be a part right. of making great records? Yeah. Which backing, you know, like backing into this concept, I think that's what I recommend to anyone in their life. Like when you find what you love, whatever that yeah. is, as long as what you love isn't eating toddlers, right? Let's mm-hmm. set that aside as well. <laughs> like when you find your passion, when you find something you love, don't let anything or anyone stop you from doing yeah. it. As long as it's, again, a healthy thing. Exactly. To be doing that. Like if drinking 12 pints of scotch a day is that thing, maybe you should think of a different yeah, dream, exactly. different avocation. <laughs> but for most people, that's not it. Yeah. So once you find that thing, I highly encourage all of you, find a way, find a way, find a way, find yeah. a way. There's like, I have a phrase, one of my favorite phrases, which is that the universe rewards action, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, I do, I'm, I'm cerebral. I like to think about things, I like to read about things, but... The time that I make the most, the times when I make the most progress in my life is when I put pen to paper mm-hmm. or I put a pick to string or I put my foot in the dirt to start up that mountain and, yep. and off I go. And then things, you know, I'm not going to say it's easy, yeah. but things will fall into place. Like that kind of energy moves you forward in your world. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I want to talk more about how specifically you got to make your studio like your career because that's mm-hmm. not an easy thing to yeah. do. But first, let's hear some more music because right we've chosen some things today. You know, Ron and I sat down right before we did this this uh, taping to figure out like what's representative of, of like the things that are, make you happy about doing what you do, things that you've worked on. So what's this? The second one we've picked is Eric Vani. Yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit about this. So Eric Vani was a, a guy I met when I lived in Canada, and. Um, it was a young kind of singer song. I actually had produced a, a few tracks for his rock band. And uh, and then he was doing a solo thing. And uh, it's one of my favorite records I've ever been a part of. It's obscure. Which is saying a lot because you've done a lot of stuff in your career. I've worked on hundreds of albums, literally. Um, but this is still one of my favorite where I listen like as a fan. And the funny thing about that record was it's... Um, you know, he'd, he'd approached me about doing it. He had this idea that he was going to record a bunch of stuff in literally his bedroom and then come out. And I was living in Seattle at that time, come out with me and then we'd flesh it out and turn it into some big production. And so he did it and did a competent job. 
of recording it uh, using not super amazing gear, but solidly good. So 90, this is mid 90s. So he probably yeah. used, was he on sure. ADATs at this point? Because that was like the uh, big format. DA88. Okay, so it's <laughs> competitor of the ADAT, yeah. same thing. So yes, uh, H, uh, nascent digital technology Correct. when it was still on a tape. Yes. And so, you know, he brought it to me and I was just floored by the songwriting, the power of his performances, and said, let's take a completely opposite approach to this. So rather than me coming in, do, producing, in air quotes, and adding a bunch of crap to it, you know, for me, producing was like, this is beautiful. This is amazing. Let's not let anything get in the way. So I actually went and started just throwing stuff away, seeing how can we strip this down to its bare essentials. And so really, on a lot of this, the only you know, sonically that I brought to it was, you know, I did some atmospheric guitar and ambience and things like that kind of stuff. But mostly what I did as a producer was, you know, how can I make this, how can I serve this music? Which again, a lot of times is not piling stuff on top of it, but pulling stuff away. And so that's what it ended up being. So I just stripped away as much as I could and left the songs and the great performances as clear and raw as possible. Yeah. And to me, artistically, one of the most successful records I've ever been a part of. Sometimes the art of producing is a reductive art. Yeah. In other words, it's it's more like sculpting rather than uh, a painting. Yes. Painting, uh-huh. you're adding something to a blank can- canvas. That's the tabula rasa approach. Yeah. The reductive approach is somewhere in this rock or this piece of wood or whatever your medium is, is it's already there. Yeah. Right, and you have to figure out what shouldn't be there. And yeah, I, and I, I I love both aspects. Yeah, of that. and there's a, a quote attributed to Michelangelo about his process for sculpting. It's like you start with a rock, you cut away everything that's not beautiful, right. and then you're done. Yeah, exactly. Wise words from one of the masters of the trade. So my guest this week on Independence Day, Ronan Chris Murphy, owner owner of Venado West Studios, California studio up in the mountains these days. You'd be on the west side of L.A. for a very long time. Absolutely, yeah. And now you're up here in the mountains, and kudos for doing that, man. Your sanity is your level. Sanity I'm level, loving it, yeah. And your peace level, <laughs> your, your stress level has got to be uh, still plummeting. Probably takes a while to decompress from all this time in the big city. Uh, so the artist is Eric Vanny, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Got the pronunciation right. And the song is Flowers on the Dash on Independence Day. There's a curve in the road that ends up forgiving you When you drive too fast and crashed your car It says that you When you looked around to see faces all upside down
My name is Joe Armstrong. You are listening to Independence Day. That is the song, Flowers on the Dash. The artist is Eric Vanny. That is produced by Mr. Ronan Chris Murphy, who was our guest this week. Ronan, thank you, man, for taking the time. I know you're a very, very busy guy, as am I. And to find a time in your schedule, this has taken us a long time. This has taken us months and months and months. Maybe a maybe, year. Maybe a year or more. Yeah, yeah it's been know, that kind of year for which me. Which is a testament <laughs> to like how in demand he is for the things that he does. He's got some really cool stuff. What, what's your uh, the recording boot camp? Yeah. We're going to talk about that. We're going to save that. We're going to okay. talk about that in a little bit. Because first I want to talk to how talk about how you got to be where you are. Um, but he's very, very busy guys, worked with a ton of really amazing artists. And if you are looking to do a, pro- a project, he might be your guy. You know, you might have to book him 10 years down the road, <laughs> but you can find him at venetowest.com. I'm sure his contact information is available on there. So let's talk about the time in your life when, like, is it's, it's, like you make it sound like you just kind of fell into it and it's a passion and you did it, but there's work involved. Like you had to have made a decision at one point in your life because it's kind of a crazy idea. Yeah. To, to do this. Like, do you remember the point at which we're, that you were sitting there and you're like, okay, this is not just going to be a navigation. This is going to be uh, my career, mm-hmm. money. You're going to make your money with this. Do you remember that? I would say yes. I don't think it was a laser moment, but as I sort of mentioned earlier, there was a time where I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a producer and a rock star. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, the idea was I was going to just keep doing both. But really it's, it's really intense to do this. And, you know, I don't think it's realistic for most humans to actually be a serious performing musician yeah. and writer and be a producer and an engineer and things like There's that. There's a handful of people who've pulled it off. Mark yeah. Knopfler comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does more scoring, mm-hmm. I think, than producing like a guy. But, like, you know, records, guys will do that. Like uh, Steve Earle's produced a handful of records. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buddy Miller, I think, is probably the best example yeah. I can think of as a guy who's an active performer. Yeah. Um, but also does has a heavy hand in his studio and producing. Yeah, and again, Daniel Lenoir is Daniel an amazing Lenoir. producer and amazing artist and things like that. But, you know, so there are re- rare exceptions, but the thing about it is you just... I think the thing with either one of those, you know, unless you're one of those freaks of nature like Daniel Lenoir, and I say that in the most positive of yeah. ways, you know, you have to submit your whole life to it. And, you know, so many of the people I know with aspirations to either of those are kind of passive about it and, you know, think it's something that will just sort of start to happen for them. And with very, very rare exceptions, that's not realistic. It really is yeah. something that you have to you know, really devote your whole life to. I mean, I've, you know, I've lived like in lots of different places because I've followed where opportunities went, you know? Right. You know, I've lived in Virginia, lived in Boston, lived in Canada, lived in England, lived in Seattle, lived in LA, you know, and I still, you know, I spend lots of my year overseas and traveling. It's, you know, I go where the music is. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of people, you know, aren't willing to make that kind of commitment Right. In a way, it doesn't make them bad people or good people, but uh, you know the analogy I always use for people who want to get into this. And again, I think it's the exact same for being a performer as this is, you know, think about I'd really like to play baseball for a living. Cool, kind of valid thing. But if you if you meet your friend who's like I'd like to play baseball for a living, and they're mostly just kind of playing PlayStation and eating Doritos, you know, most of the day, 
you know, it's kind of not realistic. And, and that friend who's getting up, you know, running, you know, 10 miles in the morning before going to the gym, before working with his batting coach and all of that, even before he's made a dime of it and is willing to uproot his whole life to go to some AAA farm team in right. North Dakota for a chance to play baseball for a living. That's the guy who's got the potential to maybe make that happen. Or girl. Or girl. I, I guess there's pro baseball for... Oh, but anyway, right. of, <laughs> anyway, I, I'm just you know making sure we're equal opportunity. Exactly. Take take the sport out of it. And <laughs> absolutely, but absolutely, um, and and that's kind of the thing. And really, t- I think to do whether you're going to be a performing musician uh, or a producer or an engineer, you have to have that level of commitment to it. Yeah. And most people don't, you know, and yeah. especially on the, it seems to be even more so on the performer side or, oh, well, I'm not going to go and play coffee shops. I'm, I'm going to wait till I can do theaters. And it's sort of like, uh, yeah. and you know, they hang out and have picnics on the weekends instead of, you know, driving to Henderson, Nevada yeah. <laughs> to, to play a coffee shop. I think people have a very disillusioned perception of what it takes to actually be successful at something. And, yeah. you know, having interviewed 200 musicians, not yeah. counting the ones I do in my day job yeah. uh, on a radio station, um, almost to a person, every now and again, someone shows up where they just hit lightning struck. Yeah. You know, I think George Michael was one of those. Like, he was living at home, I think, when lightning struck for his career and he signed a big contract, and that's what he did until he died, yep. pretty much. But all, to a person, almost everyone I've talked to, the crap that they've done, the poop they sandwiches that they've eaten <laughs> mm-hmm. in their lives, the coffee shop gigs, the open mics, the sleeping on top of vans in yeah. Walmart parking lots in Nevada in yep. the spring when it's cold. Some poor kid we had him on the band late last year, earlier this year. They actually did that, and like in the middle of the night, one of them like woke up and fell off the van. <laughs> you know, luckily he wasn't hurt, but like. Yeah. These are kind of glory stories to a certain extent, and but you don't do them because they suck. You do them because they are a means to an end. Yeah, you know, and you know, you've certainly, obviously, done that. You can yeah. probably continue to to a certain extent. Oh yeah, I've I've flown to the other side of the world, literally to make eighty dollars. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people sort of look at these things and sort of complain about. Oh yeah, we had to like sleep in the van. Blah blah blah. It's like, wait a second, you're a young guy or gal. And you're on tour with a band. Yeah. Like, how awesome is that? And and even for me, you know, both my passion, because I love to travel, and that's one of the big perks of what I do now. And, you know, now I get paid all right to do it. But literally, I would take gigs on the other side of the world where I would lose money just to be a part of music. Right. And, you know, and the business side of it, too, even when I come back, you know, being able to drop, oh, yeah, I was just in Italy working on a record. You know, when you're talking to a local band, it's sort of like, really? You're the you're the level of, you know, person right. that people fly you to the other side of the world to do work. And same sort of thing too. Like if you're a performer, like, you know, if you could go play Poland, like, man, I did some coffee shops in Poland, like a three week tour, and I only lost seven hundred dollars. Yeah. You know, when you're talking to somebody about playing Sacramento and they see that, wow, this is a person who's touring internationally, your, you know, your demo tape or package or whatever is moving towards the head of the line right. for consideration versus, oh, another band from LA. Yeah. 
And yeah, the number one thing, I mean, this is kind of off topic in terms of the studio thing, but it's all related. The number one thing I tell bands, and I wish I'd taken this on, I wish I'd known this when I was younger, is play in your own town as if it was a stop on, just another stop on your tour. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where we want to play, and you have to like play somewhere to get good at it, right? Yeah. And so the, you can, there's that phase in your life where you're a kid and you can't go to the next town over or yep. whatever. But as soon as you feasibly can, get out of your town. Play anywhere that will have you. Yep. You know, and to a certain extent, recording's the same way. Record anything you can. Work with any band you're able to Absolutely. work with. Any opportunity. Make that into an opportunity. Anyway, I feel like this is like a just somehow this has <laughs> become a giant pep talk. Good. Um, but that's kind of what it is, though. And here's my favorite tip. Again, I uh, I don't do much performing, and and the stuff I do is usually international lately. But um, one of the things I found, because you know, back in the day of you know being in the grunge alternative scene, I was the booking agent and the guitar player and one of the singers. Uh, and you know, you call all these clubs and, oh, can I play your club? Yeah, yeah, well, we got your demo. We'll keep you in mind. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Then I came up with a new strategy once, like do anything you can to book something somewhere. And again, just, you know, if you find something way like in Oakland <laughs> yeah. and if you call a club in Sacramento and saying, hey, we're out on tour, we've got Oakland on October 19th. Do you have anything available? In the weeks before, in you know, in the five days before that, then it's amazing how often they're like, "Well, we've got this such and such band. We could throw you on the opening slot. Only only hundred bucks." Right. But it's amazing. Like if you have things in the works, it's amazing how easy it is to get the ball rolling. So just land yeah. one thing, right, and and build from there. Because really, if you call up clubs and just say, "Man, we'd love to play your place one day," yeah. yeah. You'll almost never get called back. But if you've got things in the works, yeah. it's a lot easier to sort of get yeah, people to you, take you seriously. You almost have to, I hate using all these pat phrases, but it's true. Like sometimes you have to kind of generate your own light and heat. It's true. It's yeah. like, let's not BS anybody. Like the first time you go play that town two towns over, and I'm by that I mean 400 miles, mm-hmm. there's not, there's not going to be anybody there. Yep. Nobody has any idea who you are. Um, you know, and you may walk out of there, you might sell a record or two, yep. um, you know, so the next time you come through there and that's a big investment and a huge risk, mm-hmm. but if you're going to do it, that's the only way. Yeah. That's the only way, you know, yeah. you're not going to, I always, again, here's one of my own pat phrases. There are no more new fans, uh, on my coffee table or there are no more new fans in yep. my living room, exactly. no more new fans in my dining room, yep. no more new fans. Like, you know, when I wake up in the morning, they're just not there. Like you have to go out and, and earn that stuff. Yep. One way or another, unless you're George Michael and then it just lands <laughs> in your lap. Anyway, I'm talking with Ronan Chris Murphy. He is the owner of Veneto West Studios uh, in California. He is an in-demand producer, engineer, also an artist of a certain stripe still, still yes. performs. Works with some well-known people, people that you know probably, uh, names you've heard. Uh, we're talking about making records and how you become a studio owner. So now let's, let's, let's we kind of went on this huge tangent, which I love doing. Circuitous conversation is my favorite thing. Hopefully the listeners are still with us. Uh, now that you've made that decision in your life, you're going to be a studio owner. Like, what's this is kind of a little bit of a nerdy tech talk section, but like, what kind of gear do you have at this point? Because well, um, it's gear centric, even if it's a computer now. Well, the decision to be a studio owner was something I begrudgingly went into years after I'd become a professional engineer producer. Uh, I never wanted to own a studio. Um, Slightly less risky than opening a recording studio is opening a restaurant, if that gives you any idea <laughs> exactly. of what kind of thing we're talking about here. Uh, and not even because of the final financial risk, but like the life I'd sort of envisioned for myself. I love being a guy who packs up and goes, hey, going to Atlanta. 
<laughs> let's make a record. Oh, yep. We're, yeah, yeah. You know, going, working going at this point, Seattle. what we're talking about is working out of other people's studios. Yeah. You're the producer, yep. Less so than the engineer, or if you are the engineer, or I mean, engineered a lot too. But uh, you know, and even even when I lived in towns, I loved having another facility where somebody else is, you know, taking the overhead, all of the other things. I love working. Like for me, I, I own a studio and I've, I've owned some nice ones, but I love going into a well-run studio <laughs> designed from the ground up just yeah. for that job. It's a dream come true. It's still kind of, you know, I still get giddy about it. I still kind of walk into an, a nice studio and like, ooh, butterflies. Yeah. What's the Jack Lemon thing? Like right before he would go on set, magic time? Yeah. Right before they, they, they hit roll? Yeah. And so- Eventually, you know, it was kind of really when I moved to L.A., which would have been eh, 17 years ago or something like that. Um, you know, then it sort of made sense that maybe I should have a place. Uh, and mostly because, you know, working on independent projects, all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know, here's a really cool indie band without a fat budget. I really want to do their record. And to do this record right, okay, we've got $10,000 and... 9,000 of it is going to go to the studio rental and another 600 for somebody to master it. And it's like, okay, I just made $400 for two weeks. I'm okay with that a lot of times, but you can't really continue to have, you know, pay the bills. Not and sustainable. Things like, it's not sustainable. So really I built a studio just so I could really be a part of more records. And really the whole time that I've been a, a studio owner, uh, especially when I was, you know, had commercial s- facilities in LA, it was to be a part of more records. It wasn't to make more money at all because the reality is I could have dumped the studio and just worked on records that, that I go and work on overseas or travel around and probably made more money at the end of the year, but I couldn't be as part, a part of as many records or all the records I wanted to make. Yeah. So being a studio owner, that decision was, I want to, I want to make records. This is, again, that's kind of the thing again, since like around 1990, you know, the goal has been, I want to make records. I want to be a part of amazing records with great artists and everything else is in service of that. Yeah. And it's still kind of the case. Yeah. For the most part, luckily, luckily I make a decent living doing it now, but it was, that's always been the goal. Funny question, but were your parents supportive of this choice? Um, it's not exactly what they wanted, but my parents were awesome in a, in a way. Um, you know, when I went to college and, you know, early on when I had some, you know, really, really tough years early on, you know, dad helped me out a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I was spoiled. Uh, you know, again, they, I'm sure they had other things they wished me to do. A hundred percent positive. They had other things they wished me to do, you know, but when push comes to shove, they had my back, Yeah. Um, which was just an amazing, amazing gift and opportunity that yeah. I can, I hope I'm never stupid enough to discount. <laughs> and having a great family, uh, I mean, the, the importance of that, it's, it's a luck thing. You yeah. do or you don't. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's a little bit malleable over the years. Mm-hmm. People can learn and grow and change. But having that kind of support system for any endeavor in life yeah. is, is, is essential and important. But, you know, in this business, which is, how do I say this nicely? It's, it can be volatile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not just financially, but like actually volatile. Like you're dealing with trends and you're dealing with 
fickle things about the yeah. way people buy music. And then factor into this the technology of how music has changed over the years, the past since we've been in our careers in this music thing. Like, it's changed since, since you started. Mm -hmm. you, know, you started on your cassette Tascam, and then you moved up. Like, what was your first multi-track device when you opened your first room, your own your room? Oh, uh, it was ADATS. Okay. Probably ADATS or, or early... It was ADATS tied together with a Pro Tools uh, 001. Yeah. So very early... Uh, version of that. I worked at Manny's Music when the 001 was still available because it was, the, what was it called? There was Sound Designer 2 was the predecessor. Am uh -huh. I, I got that right? Yep. To Pro uh -huh. Tools. And then it became like Pro Tools, which was kind of like a two-track input thing that you could only do. You could do four, up to four tracks. You could do up to four. And the mix window and the edit window were separate applications. Oh my Lord. <laughs> See now, people who don't know what Pro Tools is, like the, the, uh, Mix window looks like a mixer, yeah. like an actual mixing console with faders and the little 747 looking cockpit with all the dials and whatnot, EQs and aug sends, et cetera. And then the edit window is when you look at a physical waveform on a screen that you can then chop it up like a Word document. Mm -hmm. You can take the second sentence and move it where the first one is. You can copy it, paste it, reverse it, do whatever you want to do. Um, you know, and when I, I guess when I was selling that stuff, I never really liked selling, mm -hmm. but it's, I was in music, it was a way to be in it. Yeah. Um, Pro Tools 24 had come out. Mm -hmm. Like, that was the newest thing. Yeah. But I, I didn't have a computer powerful enough to run it. Like, yep. all my kids and all my, my compatriots at Manny's were always begging the Waves guys for their, like, free versions of their plug-in bundles. And, and I, like, I, I so desperately wanted to be kind of involved in that. I was in New York City at the time. And, you know, and I did some work and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But I don't know. I, don't, I, was, I don't know if it was girlfriend problems or what. Or maybe I was just too focused on being a musician, but that was how it worked yeah. out for me. Yeah, the first Veneto West actually was um, my house just outside of Seattle. Um, shared shared a house with a buddy. We called it the workaho uh, workaholic bachelor pad. We were both like musicians and obsessed, yep. and worked seven days a week from the time we went um, woke up to, to till we went to bed. And our living room was the studio, and that had a couple ADATs. And yeah, we actually had an early yeah. The first one was uh, yeah, just stereo in and out uh, wow. two track on there. So we actually. But the funny thing about this is, um, you know, I always had this idea like, man, when I do my first major label record, you know, I, I'd envisioned what that was like. It was going to be, you know, to pull my late 60s, early 70s Corvette up to my private parking space at Ocean Way. With your Studer and your, yeah, your, you know, yeah, your sit Neve down, desk yeah. and all that. Yeah, so I'd sit down. That's how it all go. The reality is my first major label record I did in that living room with ADATs and a 24-input Mackie mixing in my underwear. And so, like, it wasn't that at all. It was literally, like, in my living room with a bunch of fairly cheap gear was, like, my first foray into actually getting yeah. to work on a major label record. It's part of that voodoo, though. People, you know, because you can't see us when we're doing this making albums, like, mm -hmm. you know, there's the pictures, the videos of the fancy studios you see in the rap videos or in, like, the old police videos when they're dancing on the console. Um, and people have an idea of what that is. But every now and again, like, you see some uh, video on YouTube will pop up of, like, I remember seeing one of them recording Peter Gabriel's So record. Mm -hmm. Big record. Yeah. Sold a lot of copies. Um, and, like, it didn't look anything like you imagined it would be. Mm -hmm. There were, like, boxes stacked up in the vocal booth. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't just mean garbage around the studio, but, like, a lot of these spaces are found spaces. It's yep. like, it's the DIY thing. It's like whatever, you know, Peter Gabriel at that point, you know, he'd been a professional musician for a long time, but like aesthetics comes with big money. Yep. Big, big money. Like, 
you know, just like even looking around your room here, like it's a very comfortable space. We're surrounded by wood, but there's like racks of gear and glowing lights and you know stuff that's always gotten me off as a musician mm-hmm. my whole career. You know, like I wanted to release a, I wanted to make a company that released rack panels that just had lights. <laughs> that somebody eventually did it, I think. But that's that voodoo aspect of yeah. this is that it doesn't always look like you imagine it looks, yep. and it's not always glorious. You know, we we make. What's the Donald Rumsfeld thing? Like, you go to war with the army you have. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not the one you want. Like, we make albums with the gear we have. Yeah. Limitations are good for art. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm talking with Ronan, Chris, Murphy. Uh, call, him a, call, call him a friend to a certain extent. We worked yeah. together on a project a long time ago. Uh, if you want to work with him, reach him at Veneto West. Is it studios.com? I, no, VenetoWest.com. VenetoWest.com. Where even, did the name Veneto West come from? Uh, Veneto is the region, uh, essentially the equivalent of a state in North Italy. So it's the region around Venice where it's a place I love. I spend a lot of my time there. And so, you know, I'm madly in love with the Veneto of this region in Italy. So just when I was kind of coming up with, you know, a place here, I'm like, well, it's, yeah, it's like my Veneto West you know, and so oddly enough, being funny, being especially when I moved the studio right near Venice, California, right? <laughs> uh, e- even more uh, kind of, you know, fitting in a way. Yeah. But yeah, but that's it's just because it's a region where in Italy that I love and I spend a lot of my time. So you're an Irish really. kid from suburban DC with a fancy, you're an Italophile. Is that, is that the you pretty word? much summed me up. I mean, we're, right. we're done with the interview. All right, you, good night, everybody. <laughs> good night, everybody. All right, Ronan, man, uh, let's let's play another song. When okay. we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the actual like the voodoo process. Okay, right, of like the, the tricks you use to get band, get good performances out of bands, that kind of things. Yeah. It's part of that voodoo art thing. Uh, so the next song, I think we have uh, Willie O'Terry. Tell me a bit about this. Um, well, this Willie O'Terry record again. It's one that. Um, I'm really proud of just because the creative process was very successful in terms of, you know, ending up with something that was artistically great. So, you know, Willie O'Terry is a great guitar player uh, from Austin, Texas. And, you know, he had sort of modest degree of doing, you know, kind of blues slash uh, jazz kind of stuff. The Austin thing. Yeah, but not really. I mean, he was kind of also like Bay Area and did a lot of interesting things. So he was this really interesting, creative guitar player. And he was interested in having me work on his record. And so, you know, he flew out to California to hang out and talk about the options for making a record, which is, I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole process, just sitting around throwing ideas around, talking about music you love, inspiration. And he'd sort of had this idea that, you know, I want to do something, take, you know, like drum loops and things like that and integrate it into, uh, you know, what I'm doing, this kind of out jazzy sort of stuff. But I listened to his playing and I listened to kind of a lot of the themes he'd been writing and I just wasn't feeling it at all. And I'm a pretty blunt, honest producer. You know, I try not to be a nasty person, but My whole thing is when somebody's hired me to be a producer, my job is to give honest feedback and ideas and direction. So with him, I was like, your stuff just feels so organic to me. There's, there's really wonderful organic vibe to what you're doing that I don't think, you know, using a bunch of drum loops would really serve it. Uh, and I also think maybe that might get dated fairly quickly. So I said, why don't we do something completely opposite? And this sort of these ideas came from a lot of the work I was doing with the band King Crimson. I was working on this thing called the projects with them where, you know, different configurations of the six members would improvise. And then I'd take the tracks back to the studio and 
kind of mix and edit stuff together into songs. And so what I did was I, I put some great musicians together uh, for him. So it was, you know, great bass player Tony Levin uh, and Pat Mastelato. So the rhythm section from King Crimson, a guy named Mike Keneally on keys, who's a brilliant guitar player and keyboard player. And what we did was just went into the studio for a few days in Texas and I just let the guys cut loose. Like, here are the themes. We'd sort of presented some themes, but sometimes it would be like, just go. And I I took all those multi-tracks of just days of jam sessions and started cutting and editing uh, songs out of them. So taking themes and developing, sometimes pairing it with other things from the same improv, sometimes from a completely different track. And so I'd build those into our collection of songs and then we'd come in and bring new layers on top of that so develop melodic themes on top of that solos and transitions and things like that so it ended up being the original idea of like oh let's do loops and things like that to this completely opposite idea of being ultra organic and letting just the muse sort of guide where it goes yeah and ain't technology groovy because then you found a way you're almost doing in a weird way, you're doing the same thing they set out to do. You're just doing it with real instruments. Uh-huh. You're just re you know, you break it apart to its, you know, uh, you know, component parts and then reassembling it, which mm-hmm. is something we couldn't have done. Yeah. Say, you know, uh, you know, Bob Ezrin's window edits on the wall of drum tracks, notwithstanding, couldn't have been really been done before when was that practically possible? You know, really, late '90s, probably. Yeah, practically speaking, yeah. like you could kind of do like little Mickey Mouse things here and there, but yep. like for actually like, like the OK Computer style. Yeah, kind of exactly. started at that time. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So, so like he said, it's a long setup for something. Yeah. Hopefully, it's probably longer <laughs> than the song itself. So this is Willie O'Terry is the artist. Uh, Ronan Chris Murphy is the producer of this, and the song is Ephraim Walks In on Independence Day.
Joe Armstrong, thanks for listening to Independence Day. And if you haven't already, drop by indepday.com, I-N-D-U-P-D-A-Y.com to learn everything you need to know about this show and everything I'll let you know about myself. Uh, also, indepday.com slash iTunes if you want to find us on iTunes. We're also on Instagram and Twitter as well. And this week's guest, Ronan Chris Murphy. I was going to call him an artist, but you are an artist. But yeah, not today, as much as I used to be, but today I still try uh, to. Yeah. yeah, we're talking to you mostly in the capacity of, of a producer, which is an artist of a different stripe. It's yeah, most absolutely. certainly an artist. Um, like I said, and that was Willie O'Terry. Ephraim Walks In is that tune, which is something that you worked on. What year was that? Uh, yeah, early aughts. Yeah. We'll say. Early aughts. Early aughts. Close enough as time marches on. So now let's talk about, like you said, you had a psychology degree, which mm-hmm. doesn't surprise me. Because there's that thing when you get into a studio, like there's all kinds of things, like things go wrong in the studio. Musicians are temperamental. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's a very passionate thing. This is yeah. something that people have spent a long time thinking about working out on their own. And they have to like, number one question I have is, how do you develop trust with the artists that you're working with? Because mm-hmm. again, they're coming to you with, they're bearing their heart and soul yes. and their art. Like, how do you build that? 
it's a little bit easier now for me than it was a long time ago. One is I've got more experience and hopefully a little bit better at it. Um, but also now a lot of times people are coming to me because they love records I've I've been involved with right. or, or artists that they love have trusted me. So it's a little easier to right. go, oh, okay, he, he, he's all right. He'll, he'll know what's going on. But a big part of that is kind of listening. And I've, I don't want to be too ambiguous here, but, you know, a big part of producing, again, it's easy to make a snare drum go boom. You can throw a sample in and snare drum goes boom. And even if it sucks, sometimes <laughs> that's an aesthetic you're going yeah. for. You know? But, you know, the, the human aspect of it is the thing that's the most challenging and really a big part of production. Um, so I think... And so every artist I work with, it's trying to find those different things. And sometimes it's being a nurturing person, you know, other times it's being more of a bulldog and trying to figure out what those people respond to. Um, but what I will say is virtually nobody responds well to being belittled. I mean, that's just the most stupid production, uh, aspect in the world. Like nobody responds well to being belittled. And like, if you belittle and just kind of shoot down artists, you know, they, per their performance goes down the tubes. Like, you know, a belittled lead singer can't sing in tune as well. You know, a, a belittled drummer can't play in the pocket as well. And virtually all humans, you know, respond well to really helping them figure out what's sort of great about them and trying to enhance that. And, you know, there's some people who have so much talent in every aspect of their life, it's just not fair. But other people have a different thing. And maybe it's only a small thing. Maybe it's just, wow, maybe this isn't the best singer in the world, but man, the guitar playing. So let's look at a way that we can really showcase, you know, the guitar playing, make that front and center, and then hopefully bring the other things along with it. Um, but in terms of developing the trust... I think it's just trying to be honest, and I wish I had a good, succinct answer yeah. to that. But also, too, is, you know, really listening and going back and forth with people. Because, uh, you know, a lot of people will come in and just go, okay, this is the way it is, blah, blah, blah. And without really taking what the artist has to say or really getting a sense of understanding their vision. And I think that's so important because, you know, once they've laid out, out for me, I may actually fight against it, <laughs> but you know, or yeah, I might fight against it or, or really look at a completely different route to get to the same end goal yeah. as them. But I think that's kind of back and forth. And that's one of the reasons I love pre-production so much, you know, pre-production, which, you know, for you people who aren't in the recording business, it's that time you spend working with the artist before you set up the first microphone to record. And that to me is so critical because that's the time when you can have that fight if you need to have that fight. Or it's, you know, a lot of times I'm coming in with ideas that just feel weird and awkward, you know, even like groove things. Like, I know you've been playing this and by swinging eighth notes, but really, trust me, straight eighth notes through that section. And it feels weird and awkward and, you know, give a chance to try it over a couple of days and then for them to go, oh, you're right. The, the melody just pops out better. Or, yeah, nice idea. We still hate it. Okay. At least we went down that path and we can yeah. kind of throw it away. But really developing that back and forth and 
one of the things, um, you know, when I'm working with a band, I always, uh, you know, kind of say that, you know, we've got the FU clause in here and every artist needs to know that at any point, you know, we're head to head on something, they can tell me to go F off. (laughs) And the thing about that is, and I always make it really clear, you're allowed to do that, but you need to understand that I'm going to respect that. Yeah. So if we're going back and forth on something and I really, really feel that I'm right and you pull out the FU card, I'm going to respect that even if it drives you off a cliff. Yeah. And the funny thing is most artists too, when they kind of see it that way, they're much more open to negotiation yeah. because the onus and responsibility is on them. But right. you know, at the end of the day with all of this stuff, it's a challenge because it's the artist's name on the front, mine on the back. But my name is on the back because I showed up with the job to make sure they make a great record right. that hits their goals. And I work on such a wide range of stuff. You know, sometimes, you know, I've, you know, worked on, you know, top 10 pop records in Asia, <laughs> things like that. And other things, crazy avant-garde art where all we care about is how can we piss people off <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So the end goals are always different. But there is a thing, like if I'm working with an artist that wants to have hits in a way, they want this to get on radio, they want this to connect, you know, and they've got these ideas that are completely contrary to that end goal. You know, you have that weird battle of having to go in and, and fight them in a way. It's like, really, I'm fighting you to get you what you want. Right. And really that balance is probably being able to manage that well. Right. It's probably the difference between the great producers and everybody else. And <laughs> Right. Well, that's where you get to the point where an artist has, and hopefully it's the artist who's hired you and not just the label, because there's been horror stories about I where, get both happening. Where yeah. a label, I mean, there's been great things too. I don't want to make it sound like that's always a bad thing, but like sometimes a label will, will pick a producer and say, okay, you're working with this person. Yep. Either they have a contract with that particular producer or they've had good results in the past or they just think it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And it may work out great, it may not. Um, but there's that point at which the artist has to realize, and it's almost an ego check kind of thing, that they've hired you as the producer to make them sound good, mm-hmm. right? The, in other words, um, you might be disagreeing with them, but the ultimate goal is actually the same thing. Yes, uh-huh. Right? Yep. You just have a different idea, and they've hired you for your level of skill and your experience that leads you, puts you in that particular chair at that particular time. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to be a jerk because you're a jerk, Yeah. right? You're giving them a hard line on not swinging that eighth note part on the drum part on the bridge because... Everything in your experience, based on music in your ear and your your second your, your like voodoo skill, mm-hmm. tells you that that's going to be the case. Yeah, you know, and I think that's the thing. Like you know, look at the the historic great relationships between bands and producers. George Martin and the Beatles. You know, re revolutionized how yes. we all do what we do yep. in the music business. Um, big names, Rick Rubin. Mm-hmm. How many tens of millions of records has he been involved with? T Bone Burnett. Um, uh, blah, blah, blah. what's his name uh, Mutt Lang uh-huh. yep. like Mr. Voodoo himself who like won't even give interviews about how he does what he does yep. <laughs> um, and you, we could all again we could go the rest of the day listing these kind of yeah. relationships um, anyway so it, yeah. it's these, these things are all so fascinating yeah. to me you know yeah. so who are producers like like if you had producer baseball cards uh-huh. you know like guys who you really dug like who or girls like who would those people be um, I mean when he's paired up with the right artist, uh, 
I think Daniel Lenoir is amazing. Uh, I don't think his thing always is a match. He, he's some, someone who has a pretty strong... Right, he has a, <laughs> he has a sonic yeah. thing. Yeah, in a weird way with Daniel Lenoir, like, I think some of the best of his stuff is... I, it's almost like, oh, that's a Daniel Lenoir record that Emmy Lou Harris sings on. <laughs> right. Um, and so it's almost like if I buy one of those, it's almost like, oh, I'm buying a Daniel Lenoir record. Who's, who's the guest vocalist right. uh, on this one? I mean, from technical point of views, like mixing-wise, like Andy Wallace, uh, I think is amazing. Uh, done a, it's funny. He's like old guy who looks like a gentleman farmer who does like some you know Slipknot and <laughs> Slayer and really extreme stuff. Um, Manfred Eicher, um, who um, owned ECM Records, uh, still does, and did a lot of the stuff with you know Arvo Part, Meredith Monk, Steve Reich. Uh, those are just stunning. And uh, uh, heard a, a funny si- side tangent on that one is again his the productions are staggeringly amazing. The work is great. And uh, I had a chance to see him speak. He came part of this composer symposium I was involved with. And we were asking him questions. He's like, oh, I don't know. It's just I'm lucky I work with good musicians. And uh, he didn't have anything to offer. Hmm. And I was heartbroken because I thought, oh, my God, I've been idolizing this guy for so long. But then I talked to uh, a very good friend of mine who'd actually worked in the studio with him. And I kind of mentioned this. He said, oh, no. No, not at all. He's one of the most brilliant people you'll ever know in your life. And he talked about how, you know, on this one thing, like it wasn't happening. And he pulled out, like the producer, like pulled out the scores and pencil and started rewriting like scores for like chamber ensembles and things like that, like redoing entire sections and make, making them radically better. Yeah. And then the artist's like, well, you wrote this, you're, you should be a co-writer and him saying, Oh no, no, I, I didn't do anything. I just sort of, you know, shined a new light on something great you already did. And I was like, okay, <laughs> now he's not only one of the greatest producers in the world, but insanely modest and <laughs> things like that. Who's the guy, uh, who worked with Nirvana that doesn't take points? Steve Albini. Steve Albini. Talk about a firebrand cat, like having a kind of an odd, unique way of going about stuff. Like, you won't take points on records. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's kind of a jerk <laughs> in interviews, you know, and I've seen him. Uh-huh. You know, I'm not saying this, just I, I've never really talked to him, but uh, it's just, it's so interesting how everyone's got their, yeah. their like, fiefdom. Yeah, like I the, think Albini's really interesting. I, uh, I'm not a huge fan of the way his record sounds, but I'm super happy that he exists because he I taps into something. the world needs him in, in some yeah. weird way. The funny thing is he always claims not to be a producer, but I find him to be an extremely heavy-handed producer yeah. because he basically dictates how bands will track their record. He dictates what that record will sound like, and it's pretty much, well, this is the way my records sound. Right. Screw off if you don't like and it. And when bands go to work with Albini, they know, you know, they know what they're getting at yeah. or why they're getting him. Y- you they- know what the record will sound like, regardless of the band that rolls in. I mean, the one thing I like about him, one is I'm a big fan of him as an artist. I think he's Steve Albini, like with Big Black and things like that. He's a great artist. Yeah. And again, I'm super happy that he exists. I mean, the one thing is he's a guy who, you know, could, you know, has a very workman approach to it. Like, hey, if you want me to do your record, um, yeah, it's this much for the studio, this much for my day. If you don't like it, 
go somewhere else. Right. And but, but and to that point though, he won't he doesn't always just work with like multi Grammy selling artists or like platinum most, artists. He'll work most with of the time he anybody. Doesn't. Yeah, it's it's pretty much you could just I mean, it's like Going to Starbucks or whatever. If you, the ticket, if take you the show ride up for your Albini. five bucks, yeah, you get that latte thingamajig. Yeah. And uh, which, again, I, I like that. Um, the, the thing about that kind of approach, though, is uh, his whole thing is like, well, it's not my problem. Your band sucks. <laughs> like, yeah. Which, which is actually fine. Again, I'm super happy that it right. exists in a way, but so many bands, you know, actually need that help you know a band yeah. who's never been in the studio doesn't really understand that because when i'm in pre-production a lot of the work i'm doing you know isn't whatever snare sounds easy that right. that bit's easy but it's like working with a band and trying to make sure they understand like wait listen the, your kick drum and your bass guitar are in completely different pockets the band isn't grooving because you're not listening to the kick drum and vice versa the bass player is playing a four note over a five chord and I, there was a band that was a friend of mine produced, a, mm-hmm. or, uh, I was in a band back in Chicago. And at one point, you know, he sent me some mixes of some stuff, you know, he's like, cause I've done some mixing and he wanted to know what I thought about it. I was like, well, you know, it's cool. You guys did a good job with this. And I like this song and I like this arrangement. I like this feel, but at one, your bass player is playing a four over five chord. You, you know this, right? And he's like, yeah, I can't make him stop. <laughs> so that was like, okay, that's just how, it, or maybe it was a five over four. I don't remember exactly, mm-hmm. but like. To this day, if I ever hear that song, it's like it it drives me up a wall. Yeah. Maybe it's just how they want it and it was fine for them. Uh-huh. Great. It's their name, it's their record. You know, my yeah. name's not even on it. So yeah. so go with God. But th- that stuff comes up. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's your job as the producer to go like they may have never have even noticed it. And there are uh-huh. some things like that they're that, that's those are like the idiosyncrasies that are going to make that particular band unique. Yeah. And you gotta know when to be hands off. Like, okay, fine. That's just yeah. their feel. But then there's other yeah. times when go on. Yeah. Well, th- this will sound really goofy, but one of the biggest things I work with in bands in pre-production is to try and get them to actually listen to each other. And oh my god, it sounds what like a revolutionary I'm being sar- idea. Sounds like I'm being sarcastic, but it's amazing. Even bands like big bands sometimes, and it's one of those things where it's like, it, it every a lot of times like okay, they're all in the same tempo, but they're not in the same field. They're not in the same pocket. And really, you have those things where it's like, oh yeah, the drummers, you know, playing in swing time. And uh, da 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 da, and the bass players da 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 da, da. and it's sort of like they're both awesome, but when they're you just sound sloppy, and those things even like different things like oh yeah you know one guitar player is doing a particular extension on a chord and the keyboard player is doing something totally different. It's like you really want that minor second <laughs> you know right in there. Cool if you do, but that's the thing. So many bands. Um, don't listen to each other. And here's a tip I'll give you for free. But one of the things I like to do in pre-production is break the band down into components. Like take that thing like, okay, guitar player and keyboard player, just sit together quietly and run through every song we're thinking of doing on this. You know, bass player and drummer, just you guys run through every song we're doing it. Because it's, it's bizarre how many times you're in the studio tracking the band and somebody's like, what the heck are you, like that you're just talking about, right. what the heck are you playing on bass? Like, I never I'm, knew you were doing that. I'm playing the G. It's like, well, I'm playing a flat. Well, I've been playing it for 
eight months. It's like, well, because you're- well, then you've been playing the wrong <laughs> note for eight months. <laughs> or maybe the right one, but you just got to you just gotta know. So a huge part of that is getting people to sort of really listen to each other and, and yeah. play and understand each other and have the same feel. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could get free recording tips all day. This is a perfect <laughs> segue into one of the last things I want to talk about with you, which is your recording boot camp. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, I'm imagining like people in tents, you know, they come <laughs> off and they like have to schlep a, what, what, what's the heaviest thing? Like a PM 4000 up a hill, a Yamaha console or, or, you know, or like some big speakers or something like talk to me what it is and then tell me how you came up with the idea for well, this. Well, it's exactly what you just said. Okay. No, um, <laughs> but, In the rain. Yeah, uh, exactly. We're running um, Curahee. Exactly. But, you know, recording boot camp is one of the things I've always been really interested in is kind of alternative forms of education. And, uh, you know, I, I started like teaching classes as far back as like 1993. But in 2000, I had the idea of creating something a little bit more formal. And I created this sort of five and six day intensive workshop on recording. And uh, I think, you know, I was kind of one of the first, there's a great producer named Mike, Michael Wagner in Nashville, uh, who's also doing stuff around the same time. He might've even been doing it before me. But really the, there was this situation where there was so much disinformation kind of out in the world. And I wanted to create something where I could spend a week with people and just get them really solid on the stuff you really need to know to make great sounding records, um, which sometimes isn't th doesn't sound that fancy when you talk about it. But getting a deep understanding of the basics of of tracking and mixing and audio theory, like like really understanding compression, people kind of have an idea of what it is and. You know, it's almost embarrassing to say how long I was a professional engineer without really understanding it. But like I'll spend an entire day just on compression and can feel like I'm just scratching the surface on it. I feel like I could spend a year on compression. I, like it's like, but comp like compression for people, again, let's, this is another sidebar yeah. <laughs> for people who don't have no earthly idea what we're talking about. Um, it's a way to control, uh, it's a machine, either can be either software based or hardware based that automatically controls your volume levels. So if something is mm -hmm. too loud for your gear to handle, uh, but you still need to have that, you run it through this compression and you can change ratios to see how much goes in versus how much comes out. Mm -hmm. And it's an essential tool for making records sound good. So. Yeah. And one of the things on side note of your side note is again, compression is this thing to automatically try and reduce the dynamics, make the difference between the loud stuff and the quiet stuff, uh, less. But one of the things that people don't understand is that it is one of the most powerful creative tools yeah. in the recording process. You know, you can, completely change the feel. You can completely change the rhythmic feel of a drummer based on how you do the compression. You can get things to sit forward and back in a mix based on how you adjust compressors. So you know, one of the most powerful and mostly misunderstood tools uh, of that. So yeah, everyone loves the reverb. They know what <laughs> reverb does. They have a shower. People exactly. know what reverb is. People don't know what compression is. Exactly. And compression is so much more important than reverb on yeah. records. And, um, but so again, I started doing that and it's been great. I do them, um, most, most of the time in, in California, but I also do at least one in Europe every year, usually Italy, but sometimes in Greece. Uh, I also part of that business, I do a lot of private training, uh, and, uh, a lot of consulting work, everything from, you know, major label producers to weekend warriors, to big companies and institutions. So, you know, that aspect of my life, um, it's kind of pretty busy. It's probably 10% of my life kind of doing that sort of stuff. But, 
you know, but I've always been interested in interesting ways to sort of connect people with information. Like I was most like, I more or less created the whole audio blogger genre. I, it didn't really exist. I started Ronan's recording show a bunch of years ago. And, uh, and now everybody who's, you know, bought Pro Tools that now has their own <laughs> online oh, geez, series Lord. of education. Everyone's got an iPhone, has a podcast now. Yeah. Everyone and, is and that's awesome. But, uh, you know, but, you know, I, I kind of, I was probably the first that I'm aware of. How did you, con- because you'd been an engineer by that point, but how yeah. did you convince people to sign up for it? Or, in other words, how did you find your audience for that? Because that's kind of a specific... Like, like with a, the original podcast? Uh, or the original, or like a recording boot camp, yeah. like of a niche of a niche, Yeah. right? So this is like just people who are interested in doing this, but then you've got to get them to pony up cash yeah. to go somewhere and then stay somewhere and take a week out of their lives to do this kind of thing. Like that's... I mean, that sounds interesting to me. Yeah. Well, part of like, it was... Like, how do you find the people who are willing to come listen? Gear Sluts. <laughs> okay. Um, again, for people who don't know, GearSluts.com. With a Z, right? With a Z, yeah. Right, right. Um, but a big part of it is, again, when I started doing it, I think it was me and Michael Wagner, and, you know, people couldn't imagine that there's this opportunity to hang out with somebody for a week who's worked with major artists, things like that, and just teach them stuff hands-on. So... When I first got into it, it was a very kind of new and exciting thing. And so, again, there wasn't much competition. It was this kind of amazing new thing that I could do. And, of course, that's something that's really built up. You know, other companies like Mix with the Masters and everybody's <laughs> got tons of those now. Right. But that was the big thing. I was very active on, again, this website, Gear Sluts, um, which was really the hub of discussion for re- recording-related stuff. Uh, online now it's you know fractured there's facebook groups and things like right. that but uh you know back in like 2003 when i started recording boot camp every, everybody you know a huge part of the recording world knew who i was you know some by the records i've done but also oh that guy who's on gear sluts who shares information about recording and doesn't yell at me and so <laughs> <laughs> That's faint praise, but I suppose that's a good place to start. You know, nobody, I don't like to be yelled at. Yeah, I suppose ex- some people do. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's other people in Santa Monica. That's another website, the uh-huh. dominatrices <laughs> who pay people to yell at them. But that's, again, yeah. another podcast entirely. Yeah. Um, and So, so go on, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, but, it, but it's been kind of amazing because it's a chance. I mean, I hang out and talk recording with people for free. It's like, wow. It can actually be a business to hang out and talk. So, you know, it's been awesome to do. And one of the big things we do now is this thing called the recording retreat or the mountain recording retreat. So in May, out in the mountains of West Virginia, this beautiful old resort, we have this big gathering of people that love recording and have workshops and play golf and eat great food. And so we do that like every May now. So that's kind of kind of evolving into one of the cool kind of most important parts of what that business is doing every year now. Yeah. So, so if you want to learn about recording boot camp, it's quite simply recordingbootcamp.com. How often do you do this? A couple times a year? It kind of changes depending on how busy my production schedule is. But, uh, you know, we're, we're probably doing maybe about three a year now. Yeah. And plus plus the uh, the mountain recording retreat. It's funny because there's that, when we start talking about the DIY aesthetic and in the music business specifically, how... Everyone seems to get into this because they love doing it and there's no real path and they, you know, sometimes they go to college. I mean, I did get a music business degree, but that was kind of an accident. (laughs) Um, That learning, like knowledge helps you, right? You can still like, 
you can't unlearn, but you can you can know that you're doing a, like a what I would call a crappy snare sound when mm-hmm. you're doing it. Yeah. Right. You can still just throw up a mic and do it. But the knowledge doesn't hurt you. Yeah. Right. You can you can break the rules once you know the rules. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's there's a definite value in that. Yeah. You know, and some of it is just earned by hours on in the seat. Yeah. You know, wrapping up cables and throwing up mics and blasting out guitar power cords out of your marshal or whatever. Um but you know, sometimes you need help with that. You one, know, and, and you're one, a guy that can do that. And one of the things that's I think it seems, according to my students, most helpful is there's just so much bad information out there right now. Yeah, the internet has made that yeah, the, exponentially more The bar of entry doesn't exist to get out and give advice about recording stuff. And there's so much out there that's just, it's just wrong. I mean, until God changes the laws of physics, that's just wrong. And right. Or things that are like, oh, you absolutely have to do it this way. It's like, well, that might be an interesting way, but that's not how 95% of big records are done. And not to say your way is wrong, but the idea that yours is the only way is kind of absurd. absurd. And um, or, it's, or it's ridiculously time-consuming, yes. or it's ridiculously expensive, uh-huh. or you're, you're making it harder than it needs to be. Yeah, and the reality is most people don't have a strong grasp on the fundamentals of things. You know, they think they kind of do, and they jump into these really high tech and especially it's difficult because somebody will say, Hey, I'm, I'm having trouble. You know, how do I get my vocals to really pop and be in your face? And I just wait for like all these crazy things. Well, you need a multi-band compressor side chained off of this using an MS matrix. And I'm like, Oh my God, I've mixed thousands of songs and I'm lost on what this person's saying. When in reality, the answer is probably like, Oh, back off on the attack time of the compressor and maybe pull a little this frequency out of the guitars. Yeah. That's kind of boring, but that's kind of how the greats are doing it. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, I, uh, I'm taking golf lessons. Um, oh, God help you. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> and good luck, Ronan. Exactly. Well, again, I, you know, I bought a cabin not too far away from a golf course, and I'm taking advantage of it. But, uh, and I think I'm going to write a blog post about this. And again, go to recordingbootcamp.com if you want to, yes. and sign up for the mailing list if you want these free blogs. But, my golf instructor gave me that look that I give all my students. And because he's sitting there, you know, you know, working with me, trying to just get me to, you know, stand right, stand right. And, uh, you know, not spin the club. And I'm like, so when I'm shifting from a long iron to a short iron, you know, you know, what am I supposed to do in terms of changing the tension on my grip and all this? Because, of course, I just read about that in some fancy book and his eyes just rolled because <laughs> I could tell it's that same sort of thing when, you know, you know, I'm working with a student and they're like, yeah, well, so should I use an MS matrix on my compress? And I'm just thinking, dude, we haven't even gotten to you putting the mic in the right place. <laughs> you know, you know, we haven't gotten into you even knowing how to use the most simple compressor. Right. Master that. Because really that whole kind of whiz bang stuff. And that's one of the challenges as a guy who's in alternative education who just doesn't want to be a schmuck is... You know, when I think, I'm like, man, I should do a blog post or send out a newsletter with a recording tip. And it's like, well, what I do, well, I always, you know, there's like, well, I could do some really fancy whiz-bang kind of thing, but that would be neat, but it's not really part of day-making records. So you end up writing these articles about, oh, yeah, there was that cool fancy thing on a did on a record three and a half years ago because it's neat. <laughs> uh, but the reality is, you know, how I just made my living, you know, 
this morning was right. I used a lot of basic things. I adjusted the attack time on the compressor till the kick drum popped out just the right amount. I did subtractive EQ to get that guitar from fighting that lead vocal so much. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but what about your... I didn't really do any of that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's analogous to a drummer playing fills. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't... I mean, you, you can... When I work with a drummer, you, mm-hmm. it's great if you can play great fills. Yep. That's great. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to know how to do, but can you play time? Yep, exactly. Can you groove with the bass player? Can you come up with a different cool thing that makes the bridges a little bit different? Yeah. Simpler things are what you're going to be doing 99% of the time anyway. Yeah. Kenny Aronoff, one of my favorite drummers. Yep. Right? Someone asked him, why do you play all your your fills on the snare? And he's like, well, nobody can hear the toms. <laughs> If I do a fill on the snare, everybody knows I'm playing a fill. Yep. You know, and it's these simple things. You know, I guess I'm just lending, hopefully lending credence to what you're saying. No, it's totally true. Like, I I know some drummers I work with, they spend, like, I know this one guy who spends hours, like, working on paradiddles and polyrhythms. And it's like, okay, that's all great. But he has trouble just sitting in the pocket, like getting through like an ACDC style tune. Like he can't do that. Right. You know, he can do this kind of polyrhythm thing better than I ever could, but he can't do what the song actually really He can't needs. do what's getting played on classic rock radio nine million times a day. Yeah. And getting those guys in ACDC paid for the billionth time. Yeah. And all the, you know, the great drummers, like I've worked a lot with Terry Bozio, who's one of the great drummers in the world and one of the most complex drummers in the world. And man, that guy just playing a simple backbeat, oh, it's a thing of beauty. That's the thing, like Pat Mastelotto, one of the King Crimson drummers, he can, he can play this incre- incredible polyrhythmic stuff, but man, him just sitting playing two and four behind something is so beautiful. This is one of my last little nerd out thing, and then I have one more question to ask you, is uh, Alan White, the drummer from the Trevor Rabin Yes uh-huh. Years. Yep. Like, like, Sure, there's shifting time signatures, and they're monkeying around with this or that, but... My favorite points of that record, which is something he is fully capable of doing, which is sitting back and playing 4-4. He's not even doubling up on the snare every other, or the kick every other time. Yep. He's going boom, bat, boom, yep. bat, boom, bat, for 20 measures of just doing that. And it's it's perfect. Uh-huh. It's exactly what yeah. needs to be there. People think of Yes as being this, you yeah. know, they surely they do their 26-minute, you know, explorations, yep. but like... Yeah. They know, they're smart enough to know that there is a time for that. Neil Peart is the same way. You mm-hmm. think of him as this drummer who's playing all over the place all the time. He's like, no, he plays all over the place when it's time for the drums to be all over the place. And he sits back being a great rhythm player. <laughs> yeah. You know, doing what drummers do most of the time. Exactly. All right, Ronan, one more thing I want to ask you about. And this is going to set up the last song that we're going to play out of you. And this is, this is tied to this whole thing. People don't think about this, but the video game industry is bigger than the music industry and the movie business put together, and it's nascent. It's still, how long has it been around? Since the late 70s, early 80s? Uh It's huge. Yep. Billions. Maybe trillions. I don't know. Um, So you get a chance sometimes to do cues and work with things for uh, uh, video games. So Mm -hmm. this next thing we're going to play, it's called Mafia 3. It's a cue from Mafia 3. You said it has a title, which is New Bordeaux with an X. (laughs) <laughs> um, so just talk to me about like how d- different that approach is because this is a wholly different concept where this music is going to wind up. Kids are going to be, you know, pulling their bongs and eating their mm-hmm. Doritos at yeah. four a.m. and or grownups too, and <laughs> and they're going to hear that cue a billion times yeah. or or it's going to you know it's appropriate. Like talk to me about that whole thing. Well, really, like 
If you're an audio geek, like or into the process, the most exciting work in audio is happening in video games right now, hands down. Like everything else is kid stuff compared to what's going on in video games. Like just from the sound design aspects and things like that. Like, you know, one of the great examples I like to use just the level of minutia, like this Mafia 3 game, a guy named Matt Bauer is fantastic audio lead on that. But like when you walk into a room and uh, there's wood on one side and glass on the other, the ambience that you're hearing is different because wood reflects differently from ambient, you know, than glass. You know, when you're driving cars around, if you've been driving cars around for a long time, the sound of the tires start to change because they're warmer now than they were when you first stole it from that old, you know, from that parking space. So, and what we did in Mafia 3 was, uh, it's a really interesting game. I'm super proud to be a part of it, but it's it's set in New Bordeaux, which is essentially fictional New Orleans in late 19, like 1968. Uh, yeah, if you have a problem with bad language, this is a Gritty, humid for you. place. <laughs> yes, but... Uh, and so they wanted something that was kind of blues and rock, but still had a, a hand in some of the more traditional film scorey kind of stuff. And the cue I'll play for you in a minute is one of the, you know, kind of more traditional things. It's in, you know, basically it's like the title sequence there. But what we did on that game was we'd have a piece of music um, and we would record like four different versions of it, all the same tempo, same chord changes, but different levels of intensity. And so... What would happen is you'd be going around like looking for bad guys and the music would be playing, you know, and then there's bad guys in the area and the music would get more intense, you know, and then the bad guys spot you. The music gets more intense. Oh, guns are ablazing and the music would shift up to a new level. So in real time, the music is morphing between these different energy levels to kind of give you feedback on how intense the, the danger or the action is for your character. And um, so, yeah, we have to build stuff in stems and, you know, they're even doing it at a level where, again, the different components are being mixed up and down differently based on what's going on. So, and they'll even take like themes like, oh, there might be like a cool organ part that was part of one of these, you know, searching around sequences. And all of a sudden it's somewhere else in the game, just living by itself. So there's so much amazing real-time stuff going on in video games and both the music aspect and the sound effects aspect and the dialogue aspects of it. It's just mind blowing. Yeah. And yeah, really to me, the single most exciting areas of audio right now are in video games. Like nothing else is even close to it. I love, I'm still primarily a record guy when I wake up. I mean, I get, I'm lucky enough to like worked on Mafia 3, did some stuff on Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, uh, some new stuff I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but I'm still kind of a record guy. But yeah. when I just sort of get my mind blown by what uh, men and women are doing, like in audio, they're working in video games. And the interesting thing about this, uh, Ronan, is that you're, you're creating a world. Yes. Right, it's kind of like foley for a movie that doesn't exist, or mm -hmm. foley for a movie that's constantly reinventing itself, absolutely in real time with multiple players at all times. Yeah, and it's yeah, I can see how that would be very very exciting as a as a composer and as an engineer, yeah. because everything goes into this. Like you said, it's like yeah. it, it's it's that that organ cue that was the main theme here, like. People may not realize that that's the same organ cue when they're wandering over in yep. the, the the cat house on the other side of the French Quarter. Yep. But 
their brain will get it. Yeah. You know, the brain works in mysterious ways, and it's fascinating to me. Yeah. And to, to that end, um, one of my proudest moments in the, what I would call a recording school, which was a college situation for me, even though I had done it long before that and continued long after that, was our, our instructor brought up a concept. He's like, okay, you're walking down a street. What do you hear? And I was very proud. This is, I mean, I hope this comes off. I say this in a humble way. Like everyone else started listing off things. Like, okay, well, there's a car, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And and after about ten or fifteen things, everyone else kind of petered off the things that they were naming. And I went like forty-five items deep. Mm-hmm. So I was like, is it summer? Is it winter? Is it night? Is it day? Yep. Are there migratory birds? Are there non-migratory birds? Yep. Did that guy just drop a potato chip bag? Is it a Mylar bag? Is it a paper bag? Yep. Is it 1970? Because if it's 1970, it'd be a paper bag. Is, it, is that car, uh, is the timing belt off on that car? Is that leaded gas? Is that, like, I just kept going and going and going, and my, <laughs> my, my classmates looked at me like I was insane. But I, I felt at that moment, like, that's why I want to do these kinds of things. Yep. I perceived this... I have just because of who I am, I perceive this in a different way. Yeah. And I'd like to think in some way, even though you're far more, you're like Jedi master, like we share that kind of simpatico about this kind of thing. And it's why we both do it. You know, it's about the passion for, for making people's albums great. Yep. And and for me and the framework of this podcast, telling the story of people, how they go about doing what they do. So, uh, man, I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you for taking man. the time. I mean, I, again, this uh, this episode could be seventeen hours long, <laughs> but you've already given me enough of your time for free, which I thank you for. And I hope everybody learned something today. If you want to learn about Ronan, uh, go to venetowest.com. Yeah. V e n e t o west.com. Also, if you'd like to go to his recording Jedi Academy, <laughs> uh, that's recordingbootcamp.com. He's worked on hundreds of records. You probably, you might even have his name on a record in your closet somewhere. And if you had CDs, you would have his name. <laughs> That's another thing. I guess we never did talk about that. But like liner notes have gone away. Yeah, it's a like, bummer. Like our like the, the the place where we got our credits as back you know behind the back of the record people like it's gone in a weird way. Ah, oh, it's heartbreaking. Anyway, Ronan, thank you, man. I man, appreciate. Thank it. you, Joe. I wish I really you enjoyed the, it. Wish you the best. Stay in touch. Um, and I'll make sure if anyone asks, I send them your way because uh, you can always use more clients. At least that's how it works in my end of the business. <laughs> so thank you to Ronan, Chris Murphy, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. The ass-kicking Tony Tone, Loke Piscotti, managed the Independence Day website. Thanks, Loke, for that. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. Check those guys out. For Independence Day, as always, I am Joe Armstrong. If you do one thing today, please be good to one another. <laughs>